You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we'll be discussing BPDCN, including diagnosis and treatment, common signs and symptoms, treatment options, strategies to manage side effects, and what's next on the horizon. We actually talked three years ago with Dr. Naveen Pemaraju, who's an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And it was an incredibly interesting and enjoyable conversation, and we have him back. Naveen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ken, and thank you to the LLS for having me. This is of the highest importance to me to join you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. So I think we started that out last time, and I want to do it again. What is BPDCN? Well, Ken, again, thanks for having me back. A lot's happened in the last three years since you and I had that lovely conversation. Obviously, globally, we had the COVID-19 pandemic, which really has changed the trajectory of many of our lives for patients and providers and their families. And for the disease itself, blastic plasmacytoid endritic cell neoplasm, I'm happy to report to you that a lot has improved and changed. So the disease itself is a rare blood cancer. It's unique in that the majority of our patients have skin involvement. That's right, Ken. So cutaneous or skin involvement, then followed by bone marrow, blood, lymph node, and even central nervous system involvement. So Ken, I think the best way to describe BPCN is it's a rare blood cancer that affects all of the major organ compartments, most notably the skin, can go to the central nervous system, and can be quite deadly for many of our patients uh, with a life expectancy historically of less than two years. I wanted to ask you, of that, of the name, what are the key elements and how do they fit into this for us as listeners to understand this disease better? Yeah, thanks, Ken. It's good to set the stage that way. So the way I explain it to folks is we'll take each term and we'll break it down. So blastic, the B, usually refers to immature or young, or in this case, cancerous cells. Then the long name in between, PDC, plasmacytoid dendritic cells, as you were asking, is a specific type of immune blood bone marrow cell that traffics in between the bone marrow and the immune system, skin, sort of patrolling the immune system, and the neoplasm, of course, meaning new growth or tumor. So in essence, the name, although long and unwieldy, sort of gives us some direction as to what's going on. And then the last part of it is classification. Where does it fit in the greater blood cancer hemolignancy space? Even that's moved around as well. So the name has changed. The classification has changed. The latest place where we found our home in the fifth edition WHO, which just came out a few months ago, 2022, is now under what we call histiocytic and dendritic cell neoplasms, along with some other rare cancers such as Langerhans, non-Langerhans histiocytosis. So I think that's kind of the landscape, Ken, of where it fits. So interesting. Let me ask you, changing the classification, I mean, I don't know that it changes things specifically for patients, but for scientists and clinicians, 
does this new home in terms of classification feel correct to you or does it change sort of how we approach the disease? What a great question. So I think this is so important for our patients. The good news for our patients and their caregivers is it doesn't change anything overall for them. In other words, we still are treating the disease as an acute state, an acute leukemia, if you will. We still have the novel therapies that we'll talk all about here together. But you make a great point for pathologists out there, for researchers, for folks who really need these classifications to look at epidemiology trends. It does change slightly, and that's common for these rare diseases. So it's not unique to BPDCN, but the key teaching is whenever these new classifications come out, we need to debate them, discuss them, we need to record them, document, and then when we compare retrospectively, Ken, you know, over the past 20, 30, 40 years, the name change and classification change has to be taken into account for those types of studies. But again, let me reassure for our patients, it doesn't change a whole lot what we would call clinically or the approach to the disease, but it can change the way you do some research projects, particularly when looking backwards over time. Yes, yeah. Let me ask you about the spectrum of histiocytic diseases because it's something that, you know, at least in my experience, we don't talk about that much. We used to talk right. about diffuse histiocytic lymphoma. But what is that spectrum of histiocytic disease? Well, wonderful, right? So the larger context of what you're saying is so true. In a busy oncology practice, you know, for our healthcare providers out there, outside of the common solid tumors, you know, the common blood cancers are far more uh, frequent than any of these rare diseases that I've spent my career and life doing. And I think the point you're making is a good one, which is no matter how rare a disease is, a rare blood cancer, it's not rare to you, the person who has it, the family member who's helping to take care. And so you're right, once we start parsing down into essentially here, subunits of subunits of subunits of diseases, it does get confusing and complicated fast. I would say that for this particular pocket of diseases that I specialize in, the way to think about it is the way you just said, which is now that we're in this histiocytic category, some folks have heard of Langerhans, non-Langerhans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. That, exactly. That's where you get your Erdheim, Chester, Rosei, Dorfman disease, Langerhans. Yeah. So those have a bit more establishment. And then now, as you said, under this plasmacytic, histiocytic neoplasms, we'll put the BPDCN, another related category called mature PDC neoplasm. So I would say it sort of fits in that same spectrum of rare diseases that have not been forgotten, right, Ken? They've not been forgotten. They just need a yep. new reinvigorated research approach. The last thing I would say is these words are confusing for pathologists and clinicians because they can appear in other names, right? So plasma cell leukemia, well, that's something completely different. That's under the multiple myeloma, right? So I think that's kind of the way to think about it. You know, when we look at this specific disease, what are the molecular bases for this? What goes wrong that makes these cells malignant? Right, great question. So now we finally have an answer to that. In recent decades, we've now observed two, maybe three major findings. One is that the malignant cell of origin is the so-called PDC or the precursor PDC, so primitive or precursor plasmasoid dendritic cell, usually derived from the myeloid lineage. And that cancerous cell, as we were mentioning, probably arises in the bone marrow blood and then traffics to the skin, lymph node, and all these other sites. There is no common cytogenetic hallmark. Molecular uh, hallmarks are usually centered around what we call myeloid neoplasm, so 
CMML, MDS, AML. And most commonly by far, interestingly, Ken, is the TET2 mutation or abnormality. That's the majority of our patients. Then followed by RAS mutations, ASXL1, and splicing factor mutations are very common, such as the ZRSR2. So it's a heterogeneous disease in the clinic. Patients can have skin findings, lymphoma, leukemia findings. Cytogenetics are not recurrent. Molecular, though, usually centers around these myeloid markers that we know about. And then the key, though, Ken, is the pathologist, either the derm or hematopathologist, doing staining on the tissue or flow cytometry. And that's where we have our real hallmark. And that's called CD123, which is the IL-3 receptor alpha, as you know. 100% of patients will have this. And then also CD4 and 56. So can we tell people, think one, two, three, four, five, six. That's those three markers. Mm-hmm. And then if you can, add in three more markers for specificity, which is TCL1, CD303, and TCF4. And so a triad now becoming a group of three, four, maybe even six markers can help folks to differentiate BPDCN, say, from some of these other diseases or even AML with leukemia acutis. So I was going to ask you about that. What is this disease mistaken for? So when you're seeing patients for second opinions, it reminds me a little bit of mycosis fungoides is often mistaken for other things. So what happens in your field? Yeah, what a great question, Ken. I really love it because it reminds me that there are really three factors that hamper the diagnosis of BPDCN. We've talked about some of them here. I would say number one is that it truly is a rare, ultra-rare disease. We think only maybe 500 to 1,000 Americans a year are diagnosed. So it is rare, truly, historically rare. Two, as we talked about, the name of the disease has changed itself, then the classification. Mm -hmm. It makes the pathology diagnosis tough. And then three, there are other more common either mimicking conditions or those that should Mm -hmm. be on the differential. The three most common to keep in mind when you're differentiating BPDCN, I would say number one is acute myeloid leukemia, so AML, which can itself present in the skin. That's called leukemia acutis or myeloid Mm -hmm. sarcoma. And those have to be differentiated at the heme path level. Number two is cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, as you nicely mentioned, which some of our listeners out there know that can manifest as mycosis fungoides, Cesare syndrome, NOS, not otherwise specified. So that's a whole nother bucket. And then three, interestingly for us, is CMML or MDS, uh, some of the more chronic blood cancers that can also have skin manifestation or even PDC or plasma cytoid dendritic cell infiltration. So I think those are the three major categories that usually require additional or advanced expert hematopathology or dermatopath input. And so we ask folks to refer these tough cases, you know, to academic centers or expert sites for greater clarification. Yeah, it's actually exciting to hear about it. When we started talking today, that there has been, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, and you know, thankfully science goes on and clinical care goes on. So, you know, as you're looking back on it, since we talked last three years ago, a lot's happened in the world, but what's happened in BPDCN? Yeah, Ken, it's this perfect time that we meet back after three years. I'm happy to report to you that we've had four major developments in our field in just the last three years. So number one, I would say for sure, is therapies have been updated. Just in the past three years, in addition to the first-in-class CD123 therapy, SL401 or Tegraxafus, for which I would like to note that the LLS group was instrumental in getting the original studies out there updated 
letting people know about it, including it on their website. So we have the long-term follow-up on the SL-401. We just published Ken and JCO, led by me, just two months ago, showing long-term outcomes and essentially still keeping a high CRCRC rate and showing some overall survival benefit in these really difficult-to-treat patients. So I think that's a good development. That long-term follow-up of the SL-401 is now published, still showing the feasibility of this drug, still watching out for capillary leak syndrome, no new safety signals. Naveen, let me ask you a little bit. Let's dive a little bit deeper on that. What is the three-year survival or five-year survival? What data did you report a couple months ago in JCO? Excellent. So what we showed in JCO was that among 65 frontline treated patients with BPDCN, so never had a prior therapy, 65 patients, they were given the SL-401 to Graxifus or TAG, as we call it now, monotherapy. And at a median uh, follow-up of approximately three years, we showed a 75% overall response rate, of which 57% was a complete remission, what we call CR slash CRC. And the median overall survival was approximately uh, at a year, year and a half at that follow-up with what we call a tail to the curve. And so we, yep. we have seen some long-term responders, Ken. Excellent. So now, and the drug is doing what? It's targeting CD123? Did I hear it correctly? That's right. That's right. So it's targeting the cell surface marker CD123, also known as IL-3 receptor alpha, which mm -hmm. we know is present on 100% of these BPDCN cells. Right. What will happen next? And I'm actually eager to get to the other three advances. So I don't want to <laughs> sure. tie us. I don't want to tie us down because they're all good and important. But sometimes monoclonal antibodies are combined with other drugs. What do you see happening with this drug next? You've obviously got an important signal of activity. That's right. I think what's next now with the CD123 signal is that the majority of these patients are not cured with monotherapy. So I think the next is going to be combination therapy, Ken. So combining CD123-based therapy with chemotherapy, with CNS-directed therapy, with BCL2 or venetoclax, yeah. and trying to put all of these up front to try to cure patients without needing to go to transplant and hopefully never relapsing. I think that's the next three to five years for the field. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so we have to make sure we gather again. If not in three years, then at least been before then to get an uptake. Okay, so that's number one. What's number two, three, and four? <laughs> oh, that's right. This is very exciting. Good, very good. So we talked about number one, the CD123 SO4 long-term follow-up. I think that's great. But number two development has been the rise of what you would so-called second-generation CD123 agents. So building on the success of the SO4 tag, can we develop drugs that are safer, so less or no capillary leak syndrome, easier to administer, and of course, as good or better efficacy? And I'm proud to announce to our listeners that we have work, we've been working on the second generation approach. That's called IMGN632, Ken, Pivecumab Sunarine. And that has already shown relapse refractory data. I showed at ASH two years ago. Mm -hmm. FDA breakthrough therapy designation for the relapse refractory cohort, and now we're actively enrolling in the frontline setting. And this is something that I think is very exciting for the field. So second generation novel CD123 approaches. How are these second generation drug or drugs different than the first? How molecularly are they different and what are you seeing in the clinic? Excellent question. I think the three fundamental differences or improvements, if you will, with this IMGN 6 through 2 pivecumab sunarine. One is 
it's an antibody drug conjugate. So it uses its own separate sort of linker and platform that's different from the diphtheria toxin platform of vessel full one. So it's a different attack of the CD123. Number two, it's still IV, but it's only given every three weeks as one dose. So mm -hmm. easier to administer agent. And then number three, it can be given as an outpatient even from the start. And so I think it gives you a sort of different perspective. So hitting the same target, but in a different way. Okay. I want to ask you before we move on too far, but capillary leak syndrome, what does that look like in terms of the spectrum of that from least to the most? And how do you manage it? I think this is something very important. I think anytime I talk about VPCN in these formats, it's important to bring up the capillary leak syndrome. So what it is essentially is a potentially deadly rapid accumulation of fluid in the heart, lung, cardiovascular system. And we saw it in the early days with the SL-401 tigraxaflusp agent. We were able to identify, modify the protocol, put in educational, mm -hmm. mitigating, preventing, treating strategies. And it does appropriately carry a so-called FDA black box warning and was also noted as a critical side effect by the EMA when it was approved there for adults. So essentially, it is something that can be drug-related. It is present in some diseases as well, but it's an extra accumulation of fluid in the wrong places, if you will. And again, with certain measures, you can prevent or treat it. And we have had patients, Ken, who developed the capillary leak syndrome. We treated it aggressively and quickly. They recovered, and they were able to be re-challenged with the tigraxaflusp mm -hmm. agent and mm -hmm. then went on to do well. Now, the second point of this is the newer CD123 agents, we're not seeing this uh, phenomenon as much. So with the IMGN632, in the first 29 patients that I reported publicly at ASH, we did not see the capillary leak syndrome. So it's interesting, right? So it's not just necessarily hitting CD123, it may be hitting it in a certain way because these surface markers are also present in other cells outside of BPDCN, so right. the endothelial cells, for example. I have to say, this is reminding me of high-dose IL-2, you know, right. for melanoma many years ago when I was at the NIH. So same, right. you know, capillary leak, and at that point, very difficult to manage. Yeah, and Ken, also to add, I mean, I'm glad you brought that analogy up. Capillary leak syndrome for you and me is not new, right? It's not just brand new with the SL4 agent. It has been around right. for quite some time. I would also add Denlucan Diffitox. You had mentioned cutaneous yes. also yep. has the capillary leak. So, you know, you can see it with these bacterial endotoxin-based agents, so SO-401, mm -hmm. Democan Diffitox. There's another agent known as Moxitumumab, uh, FDA-approved in the relapse refractory setting for hairy cell leukemia with a small signal. Diseases themselves can elaborate sort of a capillary leak syndrome, either due, due to paraproteinemia or perineoplastic. And then brilliantly, as you mentioned, some of the older biochemotherapy approaches, most notably in metastatic melanoma, it suggests some sort of interplay, right, Ken, between the immune system, cell kill, maybe the drug itself. It is a, an important phenomenon to know about. Absolutely. Well, let's go on because we got more to talk about. So number one was great progress using the first generation drug. Second was second generation drug. All right, what's number three and four? And so number three, Ken, very important discovery and development is that of central nervous system involvement in BPDCN. There were some papers earlier on prior to the targeted therapy era by my colleagues in Europe that had suggested to watch out for this signal. Mm -hmm. uh, but then as we moved into the CD123 therapy era, we did not 
necessarily look for or include patients with central nervous system because we weren't systematically looking for it. So I went back and looked, and mm -hmm. to our surprise, a lot of patients, something on the order of at least 22%, maybe higher, mm -hmm. are going to have CSF involvement, either frontline or relapse refractory. And we think the number might actually be higher than that if it's actually mm -hmm. systematically being captured. So we published those results, Ken, in blood last year, 2021. But what's happened is a sea change in the field, practice changing, which is we are all now adding lumbar punctures with mm -hmm. intrathecal chemo prophylactically, something like what you would see in high-risk ALL, Philadelphia yes, yes. ALL, Burkitt's, right? Even Burkitt's. Yeah. Which the supposition is that BPDCN has higher CNS rates by far than, uh, say, AML, more on the order of these aggressive lymphoid malignancies, mm -hmm. and hopefully, right, by adding prophylactic LPs, whether you're on clinical trial or not, we hopefully can decrease or at least catch the CNS earlier and treat it. So I think that's a big finding, Ken. So which drugs, by the way, are you using intrathecally? Ah, good question. So, so far, what's worked for us is we've modeled after ALL and Burkitt. So we're using intrathecal ARIS-C alternating mm -hmm. with methotrexate. Right. I recommend doing two per cycle, possibly for the first four cycles. That gives you eight lumbar punctures. Yep. Obviously, if you have someone who's even higher risk, then you can add more or go up to 12. This is all being worked out by our working groups. I think since it is a myeloid slash lymphoid kind of a presentation, it makes sense to give the ARIS-C and the methotrexate. Of yep. course, the number of LPs, you know, we can all think about. If you are CNS positive asymptomatic, then of course, as you know, we increase the number of lumbar punctures. And then of course, if you are symptomatic or other indications, you may need to consider radiation therapy. But the key is, is we don't believe that these CD123 agents monotherapy are reaching into or penetrating the blood-brain barrier enough by themselves. So combination right. with chemo, lumbar puncture chemo, this kind of thing, Ken. Got it. And number four, number four. Number four would have to be the emergence of newer targets in BPDCN and then combining, as you were asking earlier. And so... This fourth category is really led by the innovation and discovery of BCL2 being overexpressed in BPDCN, possibly even more than in AML. Mm -hmm. And then the venetoclax agent, as a monotherapy, we tested it in some relapse refractory patients. So we published these results, maybe modest transient benefit as a single agent due to BPDCN being so heterogeneous and aggressive. But when we combined the BCL2 agent venetoclax with either CD123 or hypomethylator or all three, now mm -hmm. we're starting to see some new results. And so since we last talked, now we have several studies that are triplet combination therapy. So one that I'm doing with my colleague, Dr. Andy Lane at Dana-Farber, includes SL401 plus venetoclax plus azacidine as an ongoing triplet in either mm -hmm. relapse refractory or now frontline BPDCN, particularly focusing on older patients. And then a second approach is at, at my institution only right now, which is hyper-CVAD, contagion ALL-based regimen, venetoclax, SL-401. Again, maybe older, fitter, younger, fitter patients there with, with strong chemo. But yeah. the goal is, is to include lumbar puncture therapy, combination therapy, BCL-2 therapy, 2CD-123, and then still the role for cytotoxic chemotherapy. This is a brand new era. We weren't doing this three years ago, Ken. Right, right. So, uh, you know what? I, and unfortunately, I may show my own, I don't want to say ignorance, but lack of knowledge. I think of hyper-CVAD as from, you know, mantle cell lymphoma, diseases right. like that. So, I tend to think lymphoid. But if you would try to lead us through a little bit 
why these, and I wrote down a bunch of them, but you've got a hypermethylating agent there, demethylating agent. You've got venetoclax there. You've got uh, now hyper-CVAD there. You've got combinations. When you were thinking of the rationale, how did you think through these different protocols? Yeah, you're right. You asked the right question. As you know, this took us over the majority of the last 10 years. I think that the three principles that we had were one in the older literature when there were a bit more uh, different uh, heterogeneous cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens used. Folks have used AML-based induction chemotherapy, lymphoma-based, and ALO-based, mm-hmm. again, because the disease presents with this kind of protean manifestation in the clinic. Yeah. BPDCN does appear to be a chemosensitive disease, but in the historical literature, it appears to me and others that ALL-based regimens have had the most success, possibly because of their hybrid elements, right, Can They have elements that hit kind of myeloid and lymphoid, and out of that, the hyper-CVAD in our hands and others, if the patient can tolerate it, has been historically the best regimen. So I think that Mm -hmm. comes out of data from the older groups, and I should also note, Ken, in the modern era, we can dose-reduce some of the elements calling it mini CBD. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, so that answers that first question. So if I pick between cytotoxic regimens, I prefer a lymphoid regimen such as the hyper-CVAD. Then number two, as you were asking, we started combining the venetoclax in both AML and in ALL clinical trials. So once we saw our own data in BPDCN, we borrowed that combination concept from those two acute leukemias. And then of course the CD123 story is our own And so that's how we uh, led to these combination approaches, first in the relapse refractory, but now moving them more into the frontline approach. And this is what I'm most excited about for our patients over the next three to five years. Can we show definitively with data, with evidence, that this is not only safe, but we should increase the rates of uh, responses and maybe decrease the need for allogeneic stem cell transplant in the vast majority of patients? I want to go back to the demethylating agents. How do those fit in there? Why in this disease? Yeah, is that's it just a good because, one. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, I didn't mention that yet. Yeah, so that one is another serendipitous parallel story. And I think our viewers will appreciate a lot of these rare diseases we have to borrow in the beginning from our more common counterparts. So this one is a good story. So again, same thing in the historical literature, there would be older unfit patients across the world. They cannot get the strong intensive chemotherapies that I just mentioned, and then prior to CD123 and this more recent BCL2 discovery by our group and the Dana-Farber group as limited options. So smartly, folks thought, you know, they've seen MDS-CMML older patients treated with azacitabine and D-cytabine, some of whom will have perineoplastic skin manifestations, which can transiently go away with treatment. So essentially, Ken, it was a clinical observation that was borrowed from that experience to ours, the first case reports appeared in the literature probably 10 years ago, Larabee et al., with azacitidine in BPDCN, particularly skin disease, transiently going away. Mm-hmm. And then it really was my colleague, Dr. Andy Lane at Dana-Farber, who made the scientific observation that hypomethylator agent azacitidine, when given, especially alongside the CD123 SL401, mm-hmm. can possibly reverse some of the CD123 or diphtheria, diphthamide pathway resistance and then synergizes. So basically showing a synergistic effect of hypomethylator with CD123, and that data has been published a few years ago. So basically on the basis of a clinical observation, older unfit patients who couldn't get chemo, coupled with some translational scientific observations, we now have our own primary data that 
not only hypermethylator agent, but hypermethylator plus CD123 and then now plus BCL2 as a triplet and may yeah. have a better efficacy than any of those agents alone. I have to say, very exciting, both from the clinical science of it and the basic science. Naveen, I want to ask you a question that I think about a lot, just in terms of blood cancers, and let's focus it on BPDCN. One of my few publications was on use of the word cure in cancer care. So let me ask you this, is BPDCN a curable disease? Well, thank you, Ken. I think what's really important about the word cure is you're right. I think it's a very sacred word for you and me as oncologists, for our patients, and and obviously for their loved ones. I think that we have the opportunity to cure this potentially deadly, this rare disease. I think cure for me and my patients usually means uh, two or three items. One is that the disease is reliably gone away, even at the level of possibly the stem cell, for at least five years or more. Number two, that there is a quality of life that is able to be achieved. So not just the absence of disease, but the restoration of some quality of life and health, I think is very key. And then number three is the elimination of certain aspects that were difficult with the disease beforehand that have become more streamlined with better therapy. For example, if stem cell transplant, which is currently part of the cure in 2022, can be eliminated completely or at least reduced for the vast majority of patients, and we can achieve remission of the disease durably with chemotherapy drugs in combination alone, that also adds to the so-called cure fraction. So I think that has to be a disease modification that's durable, that can be there for years and years and years in the absence of disease relapse and in the presence of quality of life with minimal amount of toxicity and therapy. I think, Ken, that's where we're starting to talk about cure. And I do think that's possible for BPDCN. Thank you for presenting that as a broader state than just absence of disease. I think it's so well said. Well, lastly, I wanted to ask you for patients and families and for clinicians for that matter, where would you recommend they go for more information, for support, and as a resource? Yeah, Ken, awesome discussion. I think one thing I wanted to bring up to our LLS community and all the providers out there is that anytime you have a rare disease, there's a dearth of information, paucity of good websites. So I just want to encourage folks out there to check out beyond a simple Google search. Look at LLS website for sure. They're always updating and changing their information very nicely. I would also encourage folks, Ken, this may surprise some people, to get on social media. I myself am active on Twitter, at Dr. Pem. I have over 12,000 followers. Wow. And created a community, Ken, called hashtag BPDCN. Yeah. And I've actually, yeah, and I've actually published on this. We've looked at the metrics. People are using it. Basically, you can get on there, whether you're a patient, provider, healthcare, stakeholder, anybody, and you can join in the active conversation. What's the latest paper? What's the latest therapies? What's the latest right. conference? And I think it's an awesome way to directly connect with folks who are involved in the community. So I myself am on Twitter the most, but you can certainly find communities on LinkedIn, Facebook. Instagram and others. And then finally, Ken, I think the other concept here is that we're starting to put together conferences and meetings where I myself am being invited to deliver talks on BPDCN. So acute leukemia forums, ASH, ASCO. I'm personally developing certain conferences for rare diseases. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be 
hopefully announcing those in the coming year. So I think there's a lot going on in the rare blood cancer space. And I wanted to let people know that no matter how rare your disease may be, there is likely somebody out there who's an expert in it. And we just have to connect folks. And the pandemic taught us that you can do that online. I got to say, what a wonderful point that is. And I have to say, you know, honestly, just reflecting back, both from my wife having leukemia and just other sort of rare things that happened with several of our children years ago, having reliable source to go to and the support involved in it too is invaluable. And I really have enjoyed and valued those in the past with LLS's ways of connecting patients with professionals. And so anyways, thank you. Thanks for bringing it up. So Nadine, I have to say, absolutely wonderful uh, visit again, as we did three years ago. So thank Ken, you. Ken, thank you so much to you, uh, to LLS, to all the volunteers. I know that's something of passion to you with LLS and to everyone out there who has a rare disease, Ken. I think programs like this remind folks that you're not alone, that you do have resources both online and people who are sort of waiting and on standby. And I think the LLS programs over the last 10 years or more have shown folks. So just remember, you're not alone. Even the rarest of the rare diseases, there's somebody or a team out there that's likely working on it. We just have to keep connecting people to the information that matters to them. Ken? Very well said and also true. So again, I want to thank Dr. Naveen Pemaraju, who's an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia at MD Anderson. I also want to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode on BPDCN on also treatment of blood cancers in general. And for this program and for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing educational activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE for our healthcare practitioner released fact sheets on BPDCN, please visit www.lls.org HCP booklets. And for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. Finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.